0: It's going to take us a little while to get through it. Uh, I think that uh, those of you that might feel a little intimidated by taking 85 or 90 weeks to go through the book of Romans verse by verse, uh, it took John Piper seven years. So um, you can be glad that it's not, or maybe you're unhappy that it's not, I don't know. Anyway, just giving you a little comparison. Uh, We are going through this verse by verse, but we take it sort of a section at a time Right now, we're in the middle of a, of a 10-week section where we're looking at Romans 1.18 through Romans 3.20. And this is some rough stuff in here, and, and I recognize this. This is Paul's case for how, apart from Jesus, there really is no one righteous. There is no one justified. There is no one good apart from Jesus. This is him building this case. And we've been looking at it for uh, six weeks. We've got another two or three or four weeks to go in this. And what's interesting about this is even though it's, it's, it's challenging and it's tough and it's talking about human nature, Uh, This is really a clear and concise understanding of the gospel. It's as clear and concise as it can possibly get. And, and, And really, this is what Paul is saying. By nature, we are all sinners, separated from God, alienated from a holy God because of our sin, not to mention the fact that we're also alienated from each other. This, this causes problems in our relationships. We're alienated from ourselves as well. We're going to see a lot of that in today's passage in verse 15. This idea of the conflicting thoughts that we have in our minds and wh- how that works and why that happens. And we're also alienated from creation. Even though we try to be good stewards of the creation, we are still alienated from the creation. The creation is also corrupt. Paul says in Romans 8 that the, the creation cries out for redemption just like we do. And so all of this, we're just all alienated from each other as a result of sin. But God, in His mercy and His love, has the one solution for this alienation. Through His Son, Jesus Christ, through His life, death, and resurrection, we can, we can, have, resu- we can have reconciliation with God the Father, and we can have redemption from our sin. And that is Paul's ultimate message in Romans, but in order to get there, he knows that he has to deal with our minds and our hearts first. He has to present the case for why we even need Jesus in the first place. And he understands that in our natural condition, we, we, we figure that we don't need God, we don't need His help, we don't need His truth. In fact, Paul says in Romans 1.18 that we suppress the truth, actively suppress it. suppress it. It's not that we're ignorant of His truth, we actively walk away from God's truth. And Paul's argument, especially in Romans chapter 2, is that we tend not to be very serious about our sin. We recognize maybe that we're sinners and that we struggle in that area, but we're not very serious about it. And we tend to excuse it and rationalize it and, and point at others and how much worse they are than, than, than we are. And so Paul needs to make the case that we really are hopeless, and desperate without Jesus in our lives. And so we went several weeks through Romans one 18 through 18-32, which we would call the descent of depravity. And then the first chapter of, of Romans 2 was, was talking about the person who is a moralist, but doesn't have Jesus in his life. And Paul says, you don't have an excuse either. It, it, just because you know a little bit about what's right and what's wrong and you judge others, you're still sinning yourself and so you're without excuse. You need Jesus in your life. And then last week... Uh, verses six through eleven in in Romans chapter two is that God shows no partiality to anybody when when He is going to judge their lives and, and ultimately what they gave their what a person gives their life to, whether they gave it to the world or gave it to Jesus. And those those are really the only two options. God shows no partiality and His judgment is always perfect and clear and concise. That's what we talked about last week. And then this week we have Romans 12 uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. And essentially you could, the big idea here, the, the, sort of the, the, the flyover sentence about what, what this paragraph is about is this. God is life and sin and self-righteousness, righteousness apart from God through Jesus Christ, is death. God is life and sin and self-righteousness is death. And the more we continue into sin, the more our minds and our hearts become deadened or desensitized Uh, to sin this is why we really need uh, Jesus in our lives so uh, what we're going to do we do this practically every week what we do is we'll we'll read it again we're going to unpack it and then we're going to look at some application uh, for our lives today so let me read this paragraph again I know David just read it but there's nothing wrong with reading God's word over and over and really just getting it uh, into us So starting in in verse 12, Paul says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Paul is, again, repeating once again, over and over. Nobody has an excuse. You have to be in Christ in, in, in order to enter the kingdom of God. Okay? For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Sounds a little bit like a works-based salvation there. We'll talk about that again. That's not what Paul is arguing. It's it's just a point about about what we really believe manifests itself in, in our behavior. And then verse 14. For when Gentiles... Again, there's been some discussion about the first 16 verses. Is he directing it to the Jews or the Gentiles or both? I think here you could make the argument that it really is both. I mean, he specifically calls out the Gentiles, and he's talking about them in verse 12 again. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They are a law unto themselves. In other words, they're going to judge themselves by their own law. All of us have some measure of morality. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So he starts in verse 12 saying, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Nobody has an excuse. And in Paul's context, he needs to make this point. There are both Jews and Gentiles in the church at Rome, and both of them think that they have some sort of an advantage. For those who are without the law, the Gentiles, uh, they've figured out now, because they've been in community with these Jews in in the church, they've figured out that God gave them the law, and so now some of the Gentiles are kind of going, well, if God gave them the law, but He didn't give us the law, then we have an excuse. Of course we're not going to... How can He judge us according to something that He never gave us? And Paul's saying, doesn't matter, he refutes that. Even without the law, you have an understanding of good and evil, and yet you still practice evil. You and I today have an understanding. If, if, if this is the first time you've ever been in church, you've ever heard anybody proclaim Jesus, anything like that, you walked in here not as a clean slate, but as somebody who had some idea of good and evil. And the irony, of course, is that even your idea of good and evil, you really can't live up to it. None of us can. None of us can live up even to our own standards of good and evil. And that's what Paul's trying to say here. He's saying, look, whatever whatever you've conjured, with the law, without the law, it doesn't matter. You have no ability to live up to it, and so you are without excuse. You need Jesus. Then he addresses those who have the law. They believe that the law will save them. The Jews are sitting there going, we have the law, that's going to save us. We just, possession of the law is enough to save us. And Paul refutes that as well. He says, look, the law is not an instrument of salvation, but rather it's a mirror uh, showing you who you really are. You hold the law up, the Ten Commandments, the books of Moses... Whatever it is, however you want to define the Old Testament, the Hebrew law, you hold that up and you look at your life in comparison to that law and you suddenly realize I can't keep that law. I've never been able to keep it. Even if I fall short at just one point, I've never been able to keep it and therefore I need something to save me. Well, the law isn't going to save you. Instead, it's going to point you to Jesus. That's the point of the law. It doesn't save anybody. it just points you to the real salvation. and you're going to be judged unworthy by the law because you can't keep it perfectly. It's James chapter 2, verse 10. "Whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point, you become accountable for the whole law. If you're a gol- I'm not a golfer. I've heard stories. If you're a golfer, you're, you're up there on, on, on the tee, and you, you hit the ball and it slices off into somebody's house, OK? And there's a big plate glass window there. Why you would have a plate glass window on a golf course, I'm not sure. But that's besides the point. Anyway, so you got an 8 by 10 plate glass window and the golf ball goes through that window, okay? And let's say it goes through the window just down in the lower right-hand corner and it goes through pretty clean. There's a, a golf ball-sized hole there and maybe a little bit of cracking around it. You don't get to go up to the owner of the house and say, hey, just spackle that hole shut and it'll be fine. Let's just cut out a little piece of glass and stick it in there with some super glue and it'll be fine. They No, the entire window is broken. You've got to replace that. That's why you drive really fast in that little cart away from there. Okay, You've got to replace the whole thing and that's going to be expensive. It's the same thing Paul is saying. It's the same thing James is saying. You fall short at just one little point. You've broken the whole thing. It's as if you've broken the whole thing and you are accountable for the whole thing. So again, all are without excuse. And then he uses this word perish. A lot of people, every commentator I read and every word study I did said this word in the English is really too weak for what the Greek is really trying to communicate. In the Greek, it literally means to destroy away from my presence. You will perish without Jesus. You will be destroyed away from my presence. You know what that's a description of? Hell. Yes, we at redemption believe in hell. That's what it's a description of. You got two possible destinations as a human being Kingdom of God, heaven, the New Jerusalem, or hell. And Paul is presenting this to us, and the only way you get into the kingdom of God is through Jesus Christ. It's the same word. Perish is the same word by some of you. Well, that's Paul. What did Jesus say? Here's what Jesus said He uses the exact same word, perish. In what some people would say is the most famous Bible verse there is, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Whoever believes in Him will not be destroyed away from My presence, but will instead have everlasting life. And the thing that we need to understand about that is is that there are two destinations that Jesus is talking about in John 3.16. Not one, as has often been presented. There's two. There's the perishing as a result of our sin and our denial of Jesus and suppressing of the truth. And that's what happens. Or if you acknowledge your sin and place your life in the hands of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, you have life, everlasting life in the kingdom of God and in the new Jerusalem. then he says in verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, just like last week, we talked about this last week, Paul is not making a pitch for works-based salvation here. Again, what he's talking about is Who you know, who you're in relationship with, whether it's the world and your sin or Jesus, that's going to determine how you ultimately end up behaving. Um, Again, only those who are in Christ really have any potential or ability or option to be able to do the works of the law. Not that those are going to save you, but that they are evidence of the salvation that you have. I have, a, I have a really good friend who, who just put it very succinctly to me one, one, once and, and it really helped clarify things for me. I came to Christ when I was 27 years old. That's when God saved me. Prior to that time, I had absolutely no ability to not sin. None whatsoever. My flesh was in charge. But after coming to Christ, I suddenly had access to the power to defeat the power of my flesh, the power of sin in my life. That's through the resurrected Christ in my life. It's not that that's always perfectly happened, but finally I have the option of being able to not sin. That's what Christ will do in your life. And really there will be life transformation after you come to know Jesus. If nothing has changed in 10 years since you've come to know Jesus, I don't know. That's what Paul says. He's saying, I don't know about that. There should be some transformation. There should be what we call sanctification, the process of, of becoming more and more like Jesus each day. The, the idea that you're going to be aware of certain sins. I'll tell you, when I first came to Christ, I mean, it was like, you know, I'd, I'd pray and I'd read Scripture and I'd say, ah, what are these sins that I've got to be aware of? And, and God would point them out and I'd be like, yeah, duh, I know. Yeah, sure, of course. Who doesn't know that? Even I knew that. But these last 10 years have been really interesting because these last 10 years have been God going deeper with me going, okay, you know when you do this? That's a problem. And I'm like, really? Who would have known that? Who would have thought that? He's going deeper with me. He's, he's revealing more. He's giving me an awareness of just how desperately wicked my heart is. Just how desperately self-centered I really am. And, and so this idea of transformation and sanctification, it should be there. I, I, I not. I understand, you know, it shouldn't just be this wonderful cupcakes and muffins experience from then on. There's going to be fits and starts and struggles. Jackie will tell you two things. My wife, Jackie. She will tell you two things about me and my walk in Christ. She will say he's a different person than when he... Uh, than he was before he knew Jesus. And the other thing she'll say is, I wish we could microwave that transformation just a little bit more. Okay, But she'll, she recognizes, she understands that there will be some transformation. James one twenty two again says, uh, be doers of the word and not only hearers uh, lest you become self-deceived. De- okay? Just hearing the word doesn't do you any good. I know people that know this Bible like backwards and forwards, unbelief. They have more biblical knowledge than anybody I've ever known in my life. Their life does not betray though that they know it other than when they tell you about how much they know. Paul is saying this has to be manifested in your life. Again, sin leads to death. Jesus leads to life. Verses 14 and 15a. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Here you go. Paul's saying, listen, every person, every person has a sense of, of justice, of equity, of purity, of love, of compassion, of charity, of what's right and what's wrong. Even if it's for no other reason than to get what we want. Uh, C.S. Lewis's classic book, Mere Christianity, this is how he starts the book. Three paragraphs here, a little bit long, but hang with me. He makes the point better than I can make the point, so we're just going to defer to him in this case, okay? Everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny and sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant, but however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kinds of things that they say. They say things like this. How would you like it if anyone did the same thing to you? Hey, that's my seat. I was here first. Leave him alone, he isn't doing any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of of your orange, I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated. Children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man or woman who makes these remarks is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He's appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, to hell with your standard... Nearly always he tries to make out that what he's been doing does not really go against the standard or that if it does go against the standard that there's some special excuse. He pretends that there's some special reason in this particular case why the person who took the seat first should not be able to keep it or that things were quite different when he was given the bit of orange or that something has turned up that would let him off the hook of keeping the promise. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule or fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you want to call it about which they really agreed. And they have. If they had not, they might, of course, fight like animals, but they would not quarrel in the human sense of the word. Quarrelling means trying to show that the other man is in the wrong. And there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you had some sort of an agreement as to what was right and wrong. Just as there would be no sense in saying to a footballer that he had committed a foul unless there was some agreement about the rules of football. Now, this law or rule about what is right and wrong used to be called the law of nature. Nowadays, when we talk about the laws of nature, we usually mean things like gravitation or heredity or the laws of chemistry. But when the older thinkers called the law of right and wrong the law of nature, they really meant the law of human nature. The idea was that just as all bodies are governed by the law of gravity and organisms by the biological laws so the creatures called man also had his law. And with this great difference that a bo- and with this great difference that a body could not choose whether it obeyed the law of gravitation or not but a man could choose either to obey the law of human nature or to disobey it. That's Paul's argument here. Everybody knows. There's right and wrong. Yet we choose to order this in a way that lets us off the hook no matter whether we have a written law or a law that we have conjured somehow in our relationship with each other no matter what. It's the same thing Tom said two weeks ago. He said, you know... It doesn't matter where you go. You go to a civilization that that has not uh, had contact with anybody outside of their little community and even they have a moral standard. And what's funny is that even they can't live up to that moral standard that they have conjured. They are living proof that we all have a standard. We all have an understanding of right and wrong and we can't do it and so we are without excuse. And now we come to verses uh, 15 and 16 and we're going to camp here the rest of the time. Verses 15 and 16. So they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There's a lot of what people have termed courtroom language in these two verses. The word accused is a courtroom language word. The word excuse is a courtroom word. Uh, Bears witness literally means to testify. And of course, judge. Judge. This word here means to weigh the evidence or to view in contrast. And with that in mind, there's two things that we're going to hammer away at in the last 25 minutes that we're together. Number one, our own conscience bears witness of our own behavior and it both accuses and excuses us. There's an argument going on in each of our minds all the time. And second of all, there is a day when everything will be out in the open, especially and including our secrets, and God will evaluate, critique, and judge us according to the gospel through his Son Jesus Christ. So the first thing, our, our conflicting thoughts about sin. Uh, there's a couple of words in there are a couple of words in verse 15 that we really need to understand. Here's the first one. The word we translate as conscience is uh, the Greek word pseudonesis. It's a conflation of two words. The prefix soon literally means together or joint or simultaneous. And the second half of the word comes from the Greek word eidos, which means to see or to comprehend or to know something. So literally, the word we translate as conscience, pseudonesis, means simultaneous knowing or joint knowing. In other words, you and I are able to see clearly both sides of our sin, and as a result, in our mind, there is an argument constantly going on about our sin. We know it's wrong, and so we accuse ourselves and we feel guilty, but we also have an ability to see our sin from another perspective a perspective that is able to rationalize it and excuse it somehow. And so when we sin, we have conflicting thoughts. And these thoughts literally at the same time both accuse us and excuse us. That's why we're so ambivalent about our sin. That's why our sin conflicts us all the time. That's why we have arguments with ourselves about it and we're frustrated about it. And, and Paul even in Romans 7 has an argument with himself over, over this idea of sin. And, and at the end he says, who can save me from this wretched body? Who can save me? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But this, this argument that goes on in our, in our minds, it's why when we're found out about our sin, we've sinned in, in private and we've been able to hide it and then we're found out, we might go ahead and admit our wrongdoing, but with the same breath, we begin to rationalize and excuse it. And we say things like, uh, yeah, yeah, I did that, but I'm not as bad as her. Or it's not as bad as you think. Or the circumstances were such that I had no choice. Anybody in my situation would have done that. Or everyone's doing it. Why shouldn't I do it? Or you'll get over it. Or or it's no big deal or I didn't mean it. We're conflicted because we literally have two voices in our head talking to us about our sin. And it creates conflict. That word translated conflicting is the word metaxi. That's the second word we need to know. It literally means in between. So Paul is saying, you're caught in between this argument that's raging in your mind about your sin. And here's the practical application for us about these, this passage and these words here. This truth demonstrates that you and I cannot trust ourselves to evaluate our behavior apart from Jesus Christ. You and I can't trust ourselves to evaluate our thoughts apart from Jesus Christ. Paul writes, take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. And the reason is because we're always stuck in between these conflicting thoughts. It's really a tyranny that we live with. We live with this tyranny in our minds about our sin. This is why we need to give it over to Jesus That's why we must allow God through Jesus Christ according to the gospel to judge us. And know this, that's not bad news. That is good news. When Paul says that we're going to be judged according to his gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's saying that, listen, if you're in Christ, it means that your sin has been judged and paid for at the cross. And therefore, you are presented to God as justified and righteous. This is good news for us. So, the first point is the double bind of our mind. And the second point, on that day, on that day, God will judge. He will render a verdict on that day. This is that big day. It's coming someday in the future. Scripture throughout talks about this day. Acts chapter 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. That would be Jesus Christ. Psalm 37, verses 12 and 13. The wicked person plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. In Revelation 6.17, for who can stand in that great day? Nobody unless you're in Christ. That would be the answer to that. And on that day, all of our secrets are going to be exposed. If you want to call them secrets, the point Paul is making is that there are no secrets from God. You can't hide anything. Your thoughts, your intentions, whatever. Whatever. Now, we can hide all this stuff from others and we're pretty good at it most of the time too. We can hide stuff from our friends and our our family, our spouses, our kids, our parents, our co-workers. We can hide things from the government. We can hide things from the pastor. We can hide things from a lot of different people. Paul's saying, you may be able to get away with that with other people, but you're not going to... God knows everything. He even knows our private thoughts. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read it to you, but this is... Here's the first four verses of Psalm 139, a psalm of David. He says, O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, You discern my thoughts from afar. You know what I'm thinking. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. In the uh, Anglican church, when they get ready to do communion, the administration of communion always begins with this line. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires are known, and from whom no secrets are hid. That's the truth about who God is in relationship to us. And we, we need to remember that in John chapter 5, Jesus tells us that the Father has given the Son, Jesus, uh, the job of making these evaluations, of judging us, it will be through him, through his gospel, and so our sin will either be judged at the cross, or it'll be evaluated in such a way that we will perish. And when I, when I encounter this, I, I've been thinking about this since the beginning of of this. Difficult journey that we've been on with Romans one eighteen through three twenty, because I always think of this essay, John Paul Sartre's "Being in Nothingness" essay. I always think of it, and and it's true about chapter one, but it's especially applicable here in verses twelve through sixteen. There's a there's a part of that essay. It's a pretty famous part. Most people know about it, even if they've never read the essay. There's a part of it there where he's talking about uh, as human beings being the subject being the object and then what he calls the gaze g-a-z-e the gaze and and he uses this illustration he says you know I, I i like it when when i'm observing other people and they don't know it because i have control i have a sense of control when i do that and and in that control i feel like i have freedom and so he, he talks about being in a hallway and and the and he's a little bit older than some of us, so he's looking through a keyhole in the hallway. They didn't have those little card things in back then. So he's looking through the keyhole into a room and the person in that room doesn't know that they're being watched. And so they're exposed. And Sartre says, at that moment, I am the subject and they are the object. And I am the one gazing at them and I have, control. I have a sense of control over them even though they don't know that I'm there. I have a sense of control and it gives me a sense of freedom. Here's what Sartre's telling us. He's saying, I, I'm a voyeur and I like voyeuring people. Okay? All of us are voyeurs. You realize that, don't you? We don't want to say it out loud, but we're all voyeurs. We all engage in people watching. We all like to watch people, right? We don't like being caught watching people, though, do we? How many of you, at a, you're at an airport or a club or a mall or wherever it is and you're watching somebody you're now the subject and they're the object and you're watching them how many of you when the person busts you when they turn around and look at you and catch you looking at them how many of you just keep on looking at them see you know the minute they look you're like Ugh. Man, look at that screen. I've never seen a screen like that. Wow, Romans, R O. All of a sudden you're like really interested in something totally stupid, okay? Trying to, you're trying to betray the fact that you're not watching them, But now you've become the, the object and they're the subject. Well, this is what Sartre says. He, says. he says he's looking through the keyhole and suddenly he hears a noise and he suddenly realizes he's being watched looking through the keyhole. Guess what? He didn't like that. He does not like being the subject, being the object, while somebody else is being the object. Now, check this out. Most people would say that this is one of the biggest reasons why Sartre chose to become an atheist. In his logic, he recognizes that there must be a God, this eternal, perfect, holy subject, and he and everybody else We're the immortal—I'm sorry—the mortal, temporal objects being watched. He didn't like that. And and so it's not—it's not that he said, "There's no evidence for God," so I become an atheist. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I think there's pretty good evidence for God. I don't like it because that means I'm not in control and I don't have freedom. Therefore, I've chosen to become an atheist. He's a perfect example of Romans chapter 1, verse 18. I'm going to actively suppress the truth. I'm going to bind up the truth and set it aside. That's what he's doing here. And the reason he's doing it is because he believes that, that somehow in control there is freedom. But that's not real freedom. Again, that's a tyranny. You go to work and whatever, in the workplace somewhere, and, and, and at some point, all of us have said this about somebody else. Ah, they're a control freak. Guess what? You're a control freak too. Probably why you said it. You perceive that they have more control than you and so you're upset, so you're calling them a control freak. All of us are control freaks. All of us are. We're all looking for control because in it we think we're going to find Freedom. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Ultimate freedom comes at the cross. Ultimate freedom comes in knowing that Jesus has already judged your sin and has paid for it. And you can give that to Him. Freedom comes when you turn over this tyranny in your mind and the tyranny of the world, of being enslaved to the world, and you turn all of that over to Jesus. That's where the ultimate freedom comes. And that's what Paul is arguing here. Ultimately, when Paul writes verse 16, he's going back to the issue that we talked a little bit about in chapter 1 of created order and how we like to disorder the created order through our sin. And again, scholars say he, he's got Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in mind when he writes this. So I want to spend the last few minutes together this morning, looking at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, in particular 3. So would you please turn there? Take your Bibles, turn all the way to the left, all the way to the beginning of the Bible. Go to Genesis. It's the first book. And go to Genesis, the end of chapter 2. I'll give you a little summary. So chapter 1 is the first creation text the seven days it's he creates and everything is good and creates man and woman and it's very good and on the seventh day he rests and and in in chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 he says let us let us make man in our image and so he created them male and female he created them in the image of god and so then you go to chapter 2 and Chapter 2 gives us a little bit more detailed explanation of what happens in the creation uh, with the man and the woman. And, and And God describes the garden, the paradise, Eden. Talks about the four rivers and the trees and how wonderful it is. And you get to verse 15 and He puts the man in the garden in order to work it. And then you get to verse 18 of chapter 2, and, it, and it's the first malediction in, in, in Scripture. It's the first malediction in the Bible. It's the first time God said something wasn't good. He looks and He says, it's not good for the man to be alone, so I'm going to make him a helper suitable for him. It's the, it's the, it's the Hebrew idiom, ezer konegdo. It's, it's somebody who's going to partner with Him, and, and, and they're going to complement each other. And then it gets a little weird. It, it, I admit, it's, it's, you know, my sense of humor is kind of funny. God doesn't just create the woman for him. Instead, all of a sudden, he's, Adam's got this chore where he has to name all the animals and the fish and the insects and everything. I don't know how long that took. It must have taken a long time. But now he, God's bringing him along, every one of these creatures, and Adam's got to name them. And then really weird, at the end of that, it says, but, but a, a helper suitable for Adam was not found among the created creatures. So he's supposed to look for this Ezer Konegdo among these animals and stuff? Really? A lion? A roach? A unicorn? What? I, I don't know. Okay. So then God says, all right, here we go. Causes Adam to fall into a sleep. Takes a rib. Creates this woman. Wakes Adam up. Adam goes and says, man, she's hot. <laughs> that, that's not in the Hebrew. That's just the 21st century rendering of what he said when he saw her. Okay. He says, this is good. I like this. And so then look at verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother, father and his his mother and hold fast to his wife, literally cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Here's the the, uh, uh, administration of marriage. God has ordained marriage. And this is the way it's supposed to look. It's a man and a woman coming together to pursue holiness together. That's the idea of becoming one is to pursue holiness together and out of that pursuit come all kinds of of other good things. But if you don't understand that idea of pursuing holiness together as as a first thing, as a priority thing, those other things are probably going to escape you. And then one of my favorite verses in the Bible which got destroyed in Genesis 3 is verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Here's what we need to understand. Here's what we need to understand about creation before the fall. There was total intimacy. There was complete vulnerability. There was an authenticity between the man and the woman that had never been seen before. There was transparency. And there was what I would call totality between them. But then look what happens. And it doesn't take long. Chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Understand this. Very rarely does Satan come at you and I with a full frontal attack. Most often, what he does is he just whispers in our ear. And he knows if he can just plant a thought, if, if, if he can just kind of say something that makes us doubt a little bit, he knows that we'll take it and run with it. That's all he really has to do. Very rarely will he come right at you. And that's what he's doing with the woman here. And so the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Hey, come on, if you eat this, you'll actually end up like God. Uh, In the 90s, a guy named Vishal Mangalwadi, Uh, wrote a great book called The Old Ideas Behind the New Age. And he points right to here and he says, this is how old New Age thought is. Genesis 3. You can be God. And she got sold. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it appealed to her flesh and that it was a delight to the eyes, it was beautiful to look at, it was aesthetically pleasing to her, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, there's that pride thing. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then, both of the eyes, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The first reaction to the first sin was to hide and cover up. Isn't that so true of us today? And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the, God, but, but, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now understand, God knows where he is. They're not playing hide and seek. God's not like, Wow, where are they? They're really clever. I can't find them. He knows where they are. He's asking him the question in a different way. What's happened? What's going on? We're going to have a conversation about this. And the man said to him, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. God said to him, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of, of which I commanded you not to eat? And verse 12, one of my favorite verses in Scripture because it betrays exactly how we are. It's perfect. It's our reaction to sin every time. The man responded, The woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. The woman you gave me. I'm totally innocent in this thing. I have an excuse. Paul's going, no, you're without excuse. You have disordered the created order. That's what we all do with our sin. We blame, hide, equivocate. It's it's so simple. It's a perfect illustration of our sin. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman does the same thing. She said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So it's the serpent. Adam and Eve, they, they were innocent bystanders in this whole thing. They knew the rules. They were really easy. One rule, that's it. Don't eat the fruit. They violated the rule. It's everybody else's fault. Okay? Now watch what happens. This sin results in hiddenness, covering up, blame, shame, and The loss of all of these things that we say we cherish and value. Intimacy, vulnerability, authenticity, transparency, completeness, and this idea of totality. Many things that we say we pine for. And, and, and here's what I want you This is This is what kills me. Because of original sin, because of the corrupt nature of human beings and the world we live in, because of original sin, you and I have never had and will never have this side of heaven anyone else in totality. Never. Not our spouse. Not our best friend. We'll never have anybody totally. And they'll never have us totally. Never. The only person we've ever had totally and completely is Jesus Christ Himself. And He gave Himself for us. It's interesting to me, you know, you look at scandals, sports scandals, political scandals. Remember the, remember the Tiger Woods thing? Remember the hiddenness and the blaming and the shame? And the lack of vulnerability and the lack of authenticity, the lack of intimacy, remember that? You look, you look at these political scandals. This is not a political statement. I'm just making an observation, but you look at these political scandals. And whatever it is, Watergate, Iran-Contra, Monica-gate, the current thing going on with the IRS, if you want to call that a scandal, many are. Now, this is a metaphor only. I'm just using this as, by the way, notice that I use... Two Democrat and two Republicans, so i 'm just right down the middle and just being careful okay just, just a metaphor only, the politicians in in Washington are Adam and Eve, and the people were God, okay every scandal, every single scandal has the same things that you find in the garden. cover up, blame hiddenness, a lack of vulnerability, a lack of intimacy, a lack of honesty, a lack of transparency, a lack of totality. You know what it has? It's got secrets. Secrets. And Paul's saying all of these secrets, the politicians, the athletes, you and me, all of them are going to be laid bare before God. But then look what happens. It gets really bad, but there's a promise in here. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and eat, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then verse 15, the promise of the coming Messiah. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise your heel. God's saying, immediately, he's saying, don't worry, I got this. I've, I've, I've got a plan. There's a Messiah c- coming. Christ is coming. Jesus is coming. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. These are the curses as a result of the original sin. And to Adam, he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, do not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Work is going to become hard and toilsome now. God went and made these garments for them out of skins. That means He had to to butcher some animals in order to be able to do that. This is the first time Adam and Eve have ever experienced or witnessed death. It must have been horrifying to see that, to hear that. It was supposed to be them. It was supposed to be them. And when they saw that and when they heard that, I'm thinking surely they must have said, wow, this sin is really serious business. But the execution of those animals for them was actually an act of God's mercy. It was Him clothing them and covering them up It was Him giving them a temporary reprieve. They didn't die, but the animals had to die. It was a sacrificial death for these people. It was an act of mercy. And it was a harbinger of what He talks about in verse 15 of chapter 3, that the Messiah is coming, that Christ is coming, and that it is by His blood that we will be made righteous. It is by His sacrifice on the cross that we're going to be made righteous. And it is by His resurrection that we are given eternal life. Throughout all of these bad news stories and texts in Scripture, Romans 1, 2, and 3, Genesis 3, there's always the promise of the Gospel. The Gospel is always right there next to the bad news. And there's an old hymn that was written in, in the late 1730's that. We do Not very many people sing it anymore. I would suspect we don't sing it very much because it's a hard hymn. To, it's, it's a difficult hymn to sing. It's difficult to understand the melody. The words are a little bit archaic. But the theology is beautiful. And it's the hymn I think of when, when, when I think of this story in, in Genesis 3 and what's happening and how our righteousness is going to come by the blood of Christ. It's, it's the hymn, Jesus, Thy Blood and Righteousness. And you look at the words up here. They're going to be on the screen eventually. Here are just the first couple of verses. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. So that's what the, the author of the hymn is thinking about and, and talking about. He's saying... My beauty are my glorious dress. My beauty are your blood and righteousness. M- my glorious dress, what I put on is your blood and righteousness. Midst flaming worlds, midst in the middle of this corrupt generation, this corrupt world that we live in, this immoral wor- world, I am arrayed in your blood and righteousness. In these arrayed. With joy shall I lift up my head. We can walk with joy because of the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ that He has imputed to us we had original sin imputed to us by adam and eve and now we have salvation righteousness imputed us through jesus christ bold i stand in thy great days this this hymn refers to this day that we're talking about bold we can stand in that great day for who ought to my charge shall lay in other words nobody can accuse me because i am in christ My sin has been judged and evaluated at the cross. I have nobody who can charge me. Fully absolved through these, your blood and righteousness, I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. The best decision you can ever make is to follow Jesus and to keep following Him. The most important decision you can ever make in your life is to follow Jesus and to keep following Him. The greatest decision you will ever make in your life is to follow Jesus and allow His blood and His righteousness to clothe you. I'm going to pray and Jack's going to come up and lead us into our time of response and communion. God, thank You. Thank You for Your salvation, Your sanctification, Your righteousness and the blood of Your Son that makes us right with You. God, I pray that we would give this all to You and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.